Well, let us take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, on this Easter Sunday, we pray that you would open your word to us yet again, that you would show us your goodness, you would show us your grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Christ is risen, and because of that, we might have life. Open your word of life to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Easter, sweetie. <laughs> that was not planned, by the way. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia. Miraculous words, my friends. Words of life, words of hope, words that turned the world upside down. Words that changed the course of world history. But they are not mere words. They point us to a miraculous event of divine intervention that gave new life to the world. Today is Easter Sunday, the day when almost all Christians gather to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is the day that he fully reveals himself as Savior and Lord. As we've journeyed through Lent, looking at God's big story, we have seen how God the Father, the primary actor in history, promised to bring redemption and reconciliation to his wayward people. And that is what we celebrate today. The instrument of reconciliation has occurred. Jesus Christ is risen. Alleluia. It is a truly miraculous day when God intervenes to show yet again that his promises are true and his word is sure. God's work in Christ's resurrection is not just a display of his power and authority, but it fully engages our humanity. This story asks something of us. The account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands that we engage our minds and it demands that we engage our hearts. And it leaves us changed. And that is what we are going to look at today. Let's start by looking at John chapter 20 and see how this account demands that we engage our minds because let's be honest about it when a lot of people think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ we don't often think of it as something that requires us to think <laughs> but it certainly did for these first witnesses the account begins as Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb and she sees that it's open Right away, she runs back to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's traditionally believed to be John himself, the, the author of this gospel. Mary's reaction here makes perfect sense, because in that time period, grave robbing was a major problem. It was so prevalent that it would eventually be made a capital offense in the Roman Empire. Mary very naturally and logically assumes that Jesus' tomb has been robbed, and so Peter and John run to the tomb to see for themselves. John beats Peter there, but stays outside the tomb, while Peter, being Peter, runs right in. Now, 
Before we follow Peter into the tomb, let, we need to take a minute here. We need to check our assumptions at the door of the tomb. You see, we 21st century Western people assume that having seen the open tomb, the witnesses would instantly conclude that Jesus had been resurrected. We jump to that conclusion because of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We assume that we are the wise, we are the enlightened, and so we know better than these ignorant ancient people. We know that it's impossible for someone to come back from the dead. We don't have blind faith like these foolish people. We examine the evidence and come to proper scientific conclusions. Well, the problem here is not science. Science is a gift. The problem is our arrogant and prideful assumption that these people were too ignorant to realize and recognize the obvious. But the truth is, they didn't assume that Jesus had been raised. In fact, they assumed the opposite. In verse 2, Mary Magdalene says to Peter and John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Her conclusion is grave robbing, not resurrection. She assumes, as we enlightened people would, that Jesus is still dead. And it's because, in part, that the Jews of their time didn't have a concept of individual resurrection. Think back to, uh, to the account of Jesus raising Lazarus. Jesus tells Martha that her brother would rise again, and in response she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, that's what they believed, that there would be a general resurrection of all people at the end of time, not that there would be one person who rose from the dead. Mary, Peter, and John don't experience this moment with the assumption that Jesus could come back from the dead. And so we shouldn't make the assumption that they believe that. We need to check that to the side. We need to remove it from our thinking. And having done that, we can enter the tomb with them. And of course, as we do that, we find it empty. But the shocking thing here is that suddenly grave robbing no longer seems like a plausible explanation. Well, why do I say that? Well, if you're a grave robber, you're not going to unwrap the body and leave all the grave clothes behind. Because the truth is, you're not really interested in the body, but the things buried with the body. You see, at that time, bodies were wrapped in very expensive spices, which meant that the grave robbers would take the wrappings with them in order to get the spices. But in verse 6, Peter saw the grave linens laying there. And he notes that the cloth that had been on Jesus' head was folded in place by itself. Now, if you're not, if you're a grave robber, why on earth would you leave the only valuable thing behind, and why would you stop to fold the head covering and set it down in a separate place? You wouldn't do it. It doesn't make sense. You're trying to get in, get what's valuable, and get out as fast as you can. 
the logical conclusion then is that something else has happened. But resurrection? Surely, surely not resurrection. Surely it's something else. Like, say, for example, as, as some have argued before, that Jesus wasn't really dead, but he resuscitated after he was entombed. But if we actually think about that, it, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus had been whipped and beaten and crucified. And so to leave the tomb, he would have had to have moved this giant stone that blocked the entrance of the tomb after having all that happen to him and the, the weakness that he, he would have felt. And surely if he had been merely resuscitated, he wouldn't have stripped himself of the linens. Think again of Lazarus when Jesus called him out of the tomb. He came out and he was still covered in the linens. It just doesn't make sense. And John looks into the tomb. He comes in and he comes to the same conclusion. We read in verse 8 that he entered the tomb and he saw and he believed. He saw the evidence and he believed. We modern people assume that ancient people would just jump to the miraculous, but it was engaging with the evidence, using his mind that John saw and believed. Did he have a full understanding of what was happening? Probably not. The next verse tells us that they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to be raised. But he certainly knew that God was somehow at work. Luke's account of the resurrection tells us that Peter left wondering at these things. He was in awe of what has happened and he continued to think about it, trying to understand it. Rod Whitaker, the New Testament scholar, summarizes this very nicely for us when he tells us that they had faith to see the fingerprints of God at work. But they didn't fully understand what was happening. You know, I wonder about that. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in the same place. That seeing the fingerprints of God in the world, we don't actually know what that means. We look around at the world, we see how things are, and even just the fact that we exist. And we conclude that there must be some kind of God, right? There must be something out there. Most most people do believe that, that there's something out there, some kind of God, even if they don't know who or what that God may be. Many of us can see the fingerprints of God, but we go no further with it. And I think we get there, I think we get to that point and we stay there because we don't actually engage. We don't genuinely engage our minds with these accounts in part because we think we know the story. We think we know about the resurrection, and so we, we set it aside. Many years ago now, more, more years than I care to acknowledge at this point, I took a world religions class uh, in high school. And in this class, we would spend two or three weeks on each of the major world religions. 
And uh, the time came to look at Christianity, and the, the teacher stood up and said that since all of us students already knew about Christianity, we were going to spend our time looking at Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, two groups that aren't Christian, all because of the, the assumption that we already knew about Jesus. That's what so many of us do, especially those of us who have grown up in a culture that, at least in the past, was majority Christian. We assume that we know, and so we don't truly encounter the resurrection because of bad assumptions. Or we don't engage with the desire to know the truth. We simply go looking online or in books for people who will give us the evidence to support what we already believe. We are, after all, a people with itching ears, Paul tells us, who, who long for teachers that will tell us what we want to hear. We convince ourselves that we are genuinely seeking the truth, but we really just want our previously held beliefs to be confirmed. And so today, this Easter Sunday, I'm going to throw out a challenge for us. For everyone listening, whether you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or you don't, whether you believe that he rose bodily from the dead and lives today or you don't, here's the challenge. Spend time with the gospel accounts. Don't just take my word for it. Go and pick up a Bible. Actually read the accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. Sit with it. Think about it. Look at it. Read and engage with the text and see whether these things are so or not. Don't make the assumption that for someone to believe that the bodily resurrection of Jesus actually happened, that it is historic fact, that we have to shut off our brains. Use your mind. Dive in to the story. There will be time for engaging with teachers and hearing from others. That is a very good and necessary thing. But start by actually reading these accounts. Look at the evidence for yourself. Peter and John looked at the evidence and they came to the conclusion that God had been working in a miraculous way. They didn't come to that conclusion by assuming it, but by engaging with what happened. Look at the evidence for yourself. The resurrection demands that we engage our minds. But we can't stop with our minds. Because the resurrection demands that we engage our hearts as well. Peter and John see the empty tomb and then they go home. Still trying to figure it out. Still thinking about these things. Not Mary. Mary stays. Mary is in tears because she is crushed. The one who had rescued her from a, from a terrible life, the one she had trusted in, is dead. And now she, she doesn't even know where to find his body. She's coming apart. And so she stands weeping. It is a heartbreaking and very 
human scene. Make make no mistake, my friends, these resurrection accounts, they are very human stories of people having very human reactions. And so there's Mary weeping. And her grief leaves her spiritually blind. What do I mean by that? Well, Mary sees and speaks to angels, and still she is locked into her previous conclusion. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I read that, my heart breaks for Mary. And then Jesus steps in, and he asks the question that should ring in every person's ears for all time. Whom are you seeking? What a question. Whom are you seeking? It is the question that each of us should be asking as we encounter these texts. It is the question that Jesus asks of us every time our hearts are turned toward God or eternal questions. And many of us are asking those questions right now as we live in a time that so many of us have, have never experienced before. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking when you ask God, why is this happening? Whom are you seeking when you ask God when comfort and relief are going to come? Whom are you seeking? Is that a question we are willing to ask ourselves right now? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking Christ? Because you can have him. Just ask him. Seek him. Are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking the God that raised Jesus from the dead. Whom are you seeking? To make this story all the more human for us, Mary doesn't get it right away. I love the fact that John includes that Mary looked at Jesus and she thought he was the gardener. I mean, what is more human than that? Right? Think about how disorienting it is when you see someone out of their regular context, right? Like you run into your teacher at the grocery store or you meet your local branch librarian when you're at a restaurant. You, you see them and you know you should know them, but the absence of context leaves you completely confused. You can't, you can't figure out who they are. You think your teacher in Lord is the gardener. <laughs> I love it. She doesn't recognize him, but her response shows that she is seeking the Lord with all her heart. She doesn't get that he's alive again, but she still longs to find him. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She longs to still be with Jesus. Deep down, that's the cry of all our hearts. We, even if we don't realize it, we long to be with God. We long to be with Jesus. And that is when it happens. The most gentle 
and loving and genuine, life-giving response. Mary. Mary. He says her name and her eyes are opened. She has been asking the question of the ages and her heart answered that she was seeking her master and Lord. And then he speaks her name, opening her eyes to the truth that the one she thought was dead and gone, the one whom she could not find, is standing in front of her, alive, risen. Mary, Jesus said. Previously, Jesus had taught us that he is the good shepherd and that he calls his sheep by name. He said, I know my own and my own know me and they will listen to my voice. Mary was spiritually blind. She couldn't see Jesus because of her emotions. They were blinding her to the truth that he had been risen. And yet in her despair, Jesus called her by name. And in response, she declares, I have seen the Lord. So many of us are stuck in states of spiritual blindness. Maybe it's because of our emotions like Mary. We've been wounded in the past and so we want nothing to do with God. That, as many of you know, was my story. I was so angry at the death of my mother that for years I didn't want God. I, I, I was able to hide that anger fairly well, but it was there and I was blind to him. And many of us are spiritually blind because of the assumptions we've made. We, we assume that no one could ever rise from the dead. We assume that logic dictates that it can't happen. We assume that logic dictates that there is no God. We assume that enlightened people can never believe what these ancient primitive people did. And many of us are spiritually blind be, because we see the fingerprints of God, but we do not want to go any further. We assume that a general acknowledgement of God is good enough because anything more than that might change things. A personal God, a God who calls me by name, might make demands on my life, and we don't want that, and so we remain blind. We cling to any doubt we can dream up. We cling to our blindness, our assumptions, and our doubts like they are life themselves. And we let their siren song ring in our ears so that we can never hear the voice of the one who calls us by name. We have more faith in our assumptions and doubts than we do in Jesus. We deny the reality of how much faith it takes to continue to cling to them. We don't hear the voice of the good shepherd who calls us. We don't know the one who came to seek and to save the lost. We don't understand the beauty of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. We don't realize that though we were lost, Jesus came for each of us. He died for us on Good Friday and rose again so that we might be with him for all eternity. We don't engage our minds and our hearts because of what it all might mean. But the resurrection demands that we engage both our hearts and our minds, that we engage all that we are because it is too important to ignore. And it is more powerful than even our assumptions, our doubts, and our blindness. 
Because here's what the resurrection does. It changes everything. It changes everything. It changes who we are and where we stand with God. Because you see, after the resurrection, Jesus says something amazing. He says it so quickly that many of us just fly right past it. But in verse 17, Jesus tells Mary to go. And to go specifically to my brothers. He had never used that language in John's gospel before. And then he says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The resurrection is what makes that statement possible. By the grace of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, reconciliation with God the Father is now possible. By faith, we are made into siblings with Christ. We are made children of God. All people are made into the image of God, but only those who have been redeemed, only those who believe in Jesus are made children of God. John tells us at the end of chapter 20 that he wrote this account. He wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is that life? It is the truth that in being reconciled to God, we are made his. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is what Jesus does for us. Do you believe that? Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd? Do we hear him who calls us by name so that we might be his, or do we let our doubts, our assumptions, our woundings, and yes, our sinful pride to block it out? The truth is the resurrection demands that we engage our minds and our hearts. It demands that we seek Jesus. And you know what happens when we seek Jesus? We find him. And in finding him, we see that he's been there all along. He's been calling us by his grace this whole time. He's allowed us to see the fingerprints of God throughout our life, even in creation itself. And by his grace, he died on our behalf, paying the price for the sin that we committed, paying the price that we never could. And then he rose again, reconciling us and making us children of God. Jesus Christ is risen. He's alive. And by his grace, we can declare with Mary that we have seen the Lord. We can confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus Christ is risen. He's alive. And because of that, so are we. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is risen. We thank you that he is alive today. We thank you that he lived and died for us. And because of what he has done for us, we might have life with you. 
Father, I pray that you would open all of our hearts, that you would deepen our, our faith to follow you more completely. And for those of us who maybe have never followed you, that you would move in our hearts, that we might be made children of yours. Thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Thank you for Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.